Hey guys, welcome to The View from the Front Podcast. You know what? Probably need to insert some really hip, really cool music here, because we don't have any really hip, really cool music on this podcast. At least not yet, maybe one day. But what we do have is news you're not going to find easily anywhere else. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas, and who was a big-time history buff even before that, I care a lot about our military, where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be about to occur, because these things matter. They matter for almost a million-plus military vets out there. And so if you're a military member, a spouse of a military member, or a parent or grandparent of a military member, this is probably a great show for you to subscribe to. I'll keep you updated on foreign policy issues, but I don't do it like you'll see everywhere else. First of all, the media almost never covers the military or looming hotspots. But if they do, they overhype everything. And you guys know I'm telling you the truth. They scare you. They use lots of B-real video with explosions and flashing graphics. Their biggest desire is eyeballs and ad dollars. I promise you, and you can check the past year of archived editions, I do not overhype, exaggerate, or any of that. If anything, I almost downplay. It's a steady and calm voice that you'll find here. But on the flip side, foreign policy journals that do cover what we do as a military and as a country, they also fall short, in my opinion. Their articles are far too long, they're far too dense, and they're crammed with big words, technical mumbo-jumbo, and silly acronyms that only insiders truly know or understand. So... I couldn't find a show that met my needs, and I decided I would just create one. Once a week, I'll discuss military matters, while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. Besides covering this news, and also sharing plenty of motivation at the end of each episode, I also work as hard as I can to unite this country. Without question, I feel like our wide division and animosity toward those with whom we disagree is the greatest threat our country faces. So once a week, I do my best to bridge this great divide, while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive political and news figures who are ripping apart this great country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and add dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, we have to remember that America has stood together for more than 240 years. And it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. That is the reality. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, And they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way... Let's get started. Also, if you want to, insert some more really hip, really cool music in your head, because apparently that's the only way you can make a podcast work these days. This is the November 10th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. Uh, I wanted to say, I managed to, uh, I won't name the person, but a very well-respected general with a very large social media following retweeted and interacted with some of my social media stuff since the last edition and oh man like i'm blown away i had like 
I think like 80 new followers on Twitter, which I know that's not everything in life, but that's still kind of cool. And um, got a lot of signups for Substack and even a few new paying subscribers. So I want to say to all those new folks out there who just found me because of that, welcome. Really glad to have you guys here. I'd say this from time to time uh, to folks. I'm just a normal guy. I'm no big shot. I'm none of that stuff. If you have questions, you want to say hello, you can email. I always get back to people. I'm just a normal guy. So again, this is the November 10th edition. We got a ton of stuff that's happening that I'm going to cover. And again, I'm just really thankful for those new folks. Welcome. And um, let's just get straight to the news. I always try to list a preview of the things we're going to cover. So the list today includes the latest news about Ukraine, including they have laid out some possible terms to begin discussing peace talks. They did this under pressure from the West. I'll name those things. We'll cover some news that Russia has pulled its ships into the safety of a port after the drone ship vessel attack a week ago, which we discussed. Uh, there's news about the Ukrainian advances in the southern part of the country near Kherson. Those have continued. Russia's announced its withdrawing from the western side of the Dnipro River, which is obviously huge news. Uh, and as a reminder, this was the only regional capital that Russia managed to seize during its massive invasion earlier this year. I'll share what that withdrawal means for the tactical situation, according to one general who's very well-versed in the art of war. I'll share what one retired army officer has said about the state of the war. He's come out and said that the Russians have already lost the war. They have no real options left, and he shares some reasons why, and so I'll share those with you. Obviously, this isn't a show just about me. I did make a pretty bold prediction in the last podcast, but most of the news on here is things I find elsewhere because I certainly don't know everything. Uh, I'll share video of a horrendous attack that the Russians attempted with this armored thrust on the eastern front of the uh, war zone in the Donbass region and how Ukrainian artillery just absolutely decimated that attempt. Um, I'll share the aftermath of what happened when the Russians blew a dam in the east, which was yet another war atrocity by them. And they created this man-made natural disaster. It emptied a massive lake that at one point had more than 50 miles of water in it, 50 miles long, two miles wide, just a massive reservoir that's now just completely shallow. And so I'll show a video of that. I'll also share a what I what I considered anyway, just a well-structured, well-reasoned argument that I came across for why supporting Ukrainian efforts to drive out the Russians actually serves U.S. interest, and not just in deterring Russia, but how supporting Ukraine also aligns with U.S. interest in uh, thwarting China's territorial ambitions and expansions. And so I thought that was something that was uh, just a well-stated thing that sometimes I just kind of assume people see some of these things, and a lot of times it's just important to show, you know, <laughs> the com the the points behind something that are much better thought out than I could say or write. And so I wanted to share that. I'll also share just a really quick must-read thread about the economics of possibly supporting Ukraine with tanks first and how Ukraine's going to eventually need to buy tanks. And so whoever supplies them first is going to be like first in line with tanks that Ukrainians are already trained on. I'll share just a bit about that because when you start to see the money on some of this stuff, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, I'm not going to get into this military-industrial complex argument or anything like that, 
but just the basics of job creation and what it can mean for a country, whoever's first to step up to support a country fighting for its democracy. And then came across something that um, I didn't realize, which is that Ukraine is really in the middle of this balancing act of trying to walk a tightrope with China. And I had no idea that this was happening, and I don't think it's been reported anywhere. So I'll share that. And then as part of that, while we're on the subject of China, I'm going to share a disturbing phone call between China and Russia. Hadn't seen that reported either, but you guys definitely needed to see this, I think. Two other quick things. I'm going to share, if you don't know, today is November 10th. It's the Marine Corps birthday. It's the 247th Marine Corps birthday, and as a prior Marine, I can't let that pass. I'll say just a couple words about that. And then finally, the final thing for the news portion is I'm going to talk about the size of our Navy kind of go into a bit about how large it used to be in World War II, just to provide a little bit of perspective. And I'm going to share an idea that could be used to help stop China that involves smaller ships and more missiles. It's kind of fascinating how much all this has changed. And I'm going to just barely touch on that because I know this is a lot of news to throw at you guys. And then finally, we'll always end with the motivation and wisdom part, which I know for some of you folks is your favorite part. So again, thanks for joining us. Love feedback. If you're new, Parts of the show you don't like, parts of the show you think I should add. Hey, reach out to me. Anything you disagree with, you know, disagree with, same thing. Reach out to me. I uh, sometimes I'll I'll share things you may not be aware of. I've done that with a few folks, and they're like, "Wow, I didn't realize that." Maybe you'll convince me. I'm definitely don't claim to know everything, so just a normal guy. So reach out to me. Thanks again for joining. Let's get to the show. All right, so we begin with the news that Ukraine laid out some possible terms under pressure from the West, I'll add, to begin peace talks with Russia. The long-term listeners will know I am not exactly happy about this. Um, I initially saw a Washington Post article that said that folks in the Biden administration wanted to at least have Ukraine begin some type of peace talks with Russia. And at first, you're always like, well, you know, I've been in the media a while, so you, there's a lot of games to things in the media, and ideas get floated from administrations. Sometimes you almost test them to see what kind of reaction there will be on cable news and among the folks in the know. And so at first, I thought, I don't really understand this, and I don't know if I necessarily believe this story, because as we've discussed in previous episodes, the you know those on the far progressive left floated out this idea, and that absolutely got destroyed everywhere in the media. And um, under lots of pressure, the progressive left said, oh, uh, that letter that we released, which was, I think, like three pages long, we're going to withdraw that. We didn't really, actually, we didn't even mean to release it. We had signed it months and months ago, and, you know, a staffer released it. So who knows what all the truth is on that, but that got pushed back, and then... You know, the elections this week went were, certainly were not a red wave. So I didn't really understand. At, at first, I didn't really understand why this would be put out there. And at first, I thought there's not much to it. I, I don't think that the Biden administration is actually doing this or suggesting to Ukraine that it should begin to talk to Russia or at least lay out some reason or some bare minimum negotiating principles unfortunately i assume they have 
because within a day or so of that story, Ukraine actually did release uh, President Zelensky some a video announcing what those items were. Now, I still am skeptical that the Biden administration was the first to start to push this because they've been pretty strong supporters, much stronger than much of Europe. And so now I've kind of moved to option B, which is that perhaps France, Germany, and some European countries under pressure themselves, including, you know, even Italy has had a change in its government. And so I think perhaps Europe was the one that says they have to lay out some bare minimum negotiating points and that you, you can't just say you're not willing to negotiate peace in the middle of a war. I don't know. That's where I'm at. I'd love to hear where you guys are on that, but I'm blaming Europe for this, at least until I hear or see things that make more sense to me. And so, at any rate, Ukraine did release some bare minimum requirements before peace negotiations get too serious. And I'll list the five. I've got the video and the source notes on my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com, if you want to see the video of President Zelensky speaking. But there are five. Um, one is restoring territorial integrity, which, as I understand it, would be leave every inch of the country. That's what I'm hoping Ukraine is able to drive Russia out. That's all what I've always said. Um, but so step one, restore territorial integrity, which would include, of course, the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, they want to respect the UN statute. They want Russia to pay off all damages caused by war. And you'll notice I'm not going into these much because you're going to realize in about two seconds that um, Russia is not going to do these things. So restore territorial integrity, respect UN statute. I'm not even going to get into that those details. Pay off all damages caused by war. By the war, of course, that will almost never happen. And this next one will most certainly not happen. Punish each war criminal. And Zelensky and the Ukrainian government knows Russia is not going to do any of these things. They're not going to pay the damages. They're not going to punish each war criminal, including down to soldiers and officers who have done so many atrocities that we've documented for you know the past six eight months, from rapes to putting families on trains. Everyone knows all of these atrocities. And so Russia's not going to do any of these things. And and so the war will continue. But Ukraine did release the minimum starting points. And as I've said before, you know, Ukraine is winning the war right now. It is not in their, you know, interest at this point to take the foot off the gas and to reward a brutal dictator who attacked them for the third time with no reason, you know. So Putin is in the wrong here, and unfortunately Putin's going to have to pay for being wrong. So that's what I think, that's where I think Ukraine is at. As I said, I think it was the last episode. I think even if the West, including America, quit funding Ukraine, they're not stopping. Too much has happened to them, and so they're going to keep pushing. But they did release these peace term, bare minimum requirements, and so they're out there. You can read about them guarantee 100% chance Russia's not doing any of those, so I'm not going to waste any more air discussing it. Unless you want to share with me, you want to reach out by email and say, hey, here's why I think they actually did that. It was probably a good PR move. Uh, I got beat up on social media a bit because I was like, there are no peace terms. Russian 
until Russia's got to leave. That's the bottom line. And people, a lot of people were beating me up saying that's too strong of a stance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I didn't feel like arguing with people on social media, so I just kind of let it lay. But too much has happened to Ukraine for um, for them not to drive Russia out of every single inch of ground and for them not to build the most advanced, powerful military they possibly can so that this never happens again. So that's, that's there. I've said too much. Let's go to the next topic. So Russia is moved Russia's vol, you know, valiant vaunted navy in the Black Sea. They lost their, you know, their flagship months ago and just recently they had the you know, unmanned naval drone ship attack that Ukraine launched and they had a ship that was damaged. And you can see the panic in the video I posted. I believe it was last week. And so Russia's navy didn't look too good. I don't think it did too well. And so this Russian sea fleet has had to pull their naval forces back even further into port for safety. And if you recall earlier in the war, you know, they they were selling their ships around. They controlled Snake Island. They were starting to influence and do things from the sea. But that is no more. Um, I didn't post a link to this, but I did see that... Russia tried to sail two more ships into the Black Sea, and Turkey would not allow them. Turkey controls the port at the entrance entrance to it, and um, not the port, but uh, there's a very small opening into the sea. Turkey controls that, and during times of war, they will not allow um, any country to send ships through there without their permission. So they stopped two Russian ships. I am certain Vladimir Putin wasn't happy about that. Um, but again, um, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Turkey's leader, Erdogan, but he stood up to Putin and he stopped the two ships and what was once a great country of Russia is not only can they not handle Ukraine, they have again backed down from Turkey. So I'm sure, um, Mr. Putin is not, he looks in the mirror and he probably does not see the strong man he once saw in that mirror, even just a year or so ago. So Turkey stood up to him, stopped two more ships from coming in. Russia's navy feels it's too um, weak and isolated, so they moved it back to the port. That's huge news for Ukraine. And also, to me, part of why Russia will never want to give up the Crimean Peninsula is that they do have that huge naval base there. But increasingly, if Russia's navy is, you know, almost like a small fishing fleet or something that has almost no power it can exert from there, well then, what's the point of having this big naval base? Because Russia increasingly doesn't have worldwide influence. So, big big win for uh, Ukraine there, and I'm certainly cheering the news. Now, this next bit of news is arguably even bigger news than the deal about the Russian fleet. Russia has, we've talked about for months now, um, about Ukraine building up in the southern part of the country as they're attacking the Russians in the Kherson region. And so they've been pushing there, and then some people thought it was just a feint, and then they had that massive advance in the east in the Donbass region around Kharkiv. But they actually have still been pushing south toward Kherson, which would lead, it's kind of the opening toward the Crimean Peninsula eventually, but it's also... You know, it was an important regional capital that Russia had seized. 
And since the last episode, Russia has announced that it is withdrawing to the east side of the Dnipro River. So they're basically leaving Kherson. That's huge news. That was a large capital. It had 250, I think 280,000 people in it before the war began. Obviously, it's sustained a lot of damage since then. Not sure of the population now. And there's been talk that Russia had been rounding up residents to, quote, move them to safety further behind Russian lines. Not always was this by choice. Um, so that's horrible as well. Um, maybe some of the local citizens supported Russia, um, and maybe they were okay with it. But certainly not many probably were. And if you put yourself in their shoes, if Russian troops showed up at your door and asked, as they're in somewhat of a panic and leaving the area, hey, do you support Russia? Are you going to come back to the safety of Russian lines? And you've got these dirty, tired-looking, unshaven dudes carrying AKs. Are you going to say, no, you know, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to stay here. I think, uh, I think I'm pro-Ukraine. No, I don't know if you're going to say that. So... At any rate, some have been forcibly removed. I'm sure some have been pressured to be removed from the area. But Russia did announce that they were finally withdrawing across the Dnipro River. This is huge, huge news for Ukraine. And I'll share a video summary from CNN about that. It's a pretty good summary I found if you want to watch that video. It's about three minutes long. But I also wanted to share kind of what this means for the war and I wanted to share it from someone with way more expertise than myself. And so what I'm about to share is from a, a gentleman named General uh, Mick Ryan. He's a retired Major General in the Australian Army. He was a graduate of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He attended and graduated from the Marine Corps University Command and Staff College, uh, their School of Advanced Warfighting. This is a guy that's literally spent, you know, 30-plus years studying warfare. And so I will... Uh, share his opinion because I certainly think it's worth sharing. And so uh, General Ryan was saying that, you know, the Ukrainians have obviously fought hard and for months to make this happen. And so I've got a map of what the city of Kherson looks like. If you want to go to the source notes and get a better idea, a lot of people don't know that Kherson is actually a port city. The Dnipro River is so large that it's kind of the, the mouth of the Dnipro River, which goes all the way up into uh, other parts of Europe, and so a lot of ships pass through there. Um, barges, ships, small ships, it's not like massive fleet liners, but it's still an important uh, port city that goes back to like the 1800s, um, and a big fort had been built there. But So this important entryway up the Dnipro River has been basically taken because Russia's leaving and Ukraine is carefully moving into the area, worried about some various traps, obviously. So uh, General Mikoran says, you know, what's Ukraine's next steps? Uh, he says he predicts it's unlikely the Ukrainians will be undertaking a large-scale crossing of the Dnipro River to the eastern bank anytime soon. Uh, he said that not only would that be like a massive, deliberate operation, it would attack into, you know, the strength of Russia's defensive zones. And of course, anytime, I can say this as a Marine, anytime you're cross, uh, attacking across water, it's dangerous. It's easy to be stopped. If you study World War II history especially, crossing rivers, as whether it was the Germans going across into Russia or the Americans as they fought their way through France into the heartland of Germany, every river that you cross, especially once the bridges are blown, which they are here, 
it's a serious undertaking. It takes a lot of planning, scouting. Um, you have to basically manipulate the enemy with psyops that you might attack somewhere else so that they move more defenses there. You gotta, it's just a big deal, and it's a dangerous move. You don't want your troops cut off or attacked as they're going across too, too heavily. So, uh, just back to the point, he says, uh, General McRyan continues that he thinks the Ukrainians will, who prefer to attack indirectly, that they'll use uh, High Mars multiple launch rocket systems to keep hitting the enemy logistics, their intelligence folks, and that they'll look for other opportunities to clear the uh, Russians from the south. Um, he, he points out correctly, and I've got a map of this as well if you want to go look, just by taking this additional ground, how much further the High Mars will now be able to fire into Ukraine. Or not, I guess it is technically Ukraine, but Russian occupied Ukraine. And so that's going to make it even harder for the Russians as they. There's been a lot of analysts sharing information that intercepted communications from uh, Russians on Telegram, which is what they mostly use, that they're really struggling right now because they can't store much fuel or ammunition in a single spot because those places always get targeted. So they're doing much smaller little depots. And so they're already struggling to get artillery and fuel. And so this is only going to make it even harder. Uh, General McRyan goes on to say that um, that as far as pushing further, obviously this is an, what he called an enabling operation for a future campaign to recapture Crimea. There's also some uh, photos taken by local residents that the Russians are building up defenses further uh, south near the Crimean Peninsula. So they're already getting ready for what they know will eventually come, which is that Ukraine is going to push south and try to take that area. He also rightly points out that um, any type of, and I think this is an important point, that the announcement was made by the military, but that giving up territory, especially a provincial capital such as Kherson, it was the only one that Ukraine or that Russia was able to take, that there's no way this happened without Putin signing off on it. And he makes a point that I think is really good for those in the West who especially worry about nuclear war and what might Putin be thinking, or is he crazy or stable. And he says that the fact that Putin was able to recognize that all of these troops could have been cut off and that he made a rational decision, that this is important that we, we recognize this and that, you know, he recognized reality. He's not the crazy dictator at the end who's screaming at generals making completely impossible orders he recognized the reality he withdrew he allowed them to withdraw and then of course being a dictator he's already setting it up that he's gonna there's a couple of generals there he's basically gonna blame the military for the russian debacle down there so wouldn't want to be those guys but hey that's uh that's what they signed up for um, so wanted to share all of that. I got that in the thread. He goes into detail on all those things a little bit more than what I've done, but I thought those were some high points that definitely were worth sharing. So I wanted to move from that topic to something that uh, retired Major John Spencer said. Uh, this gentleman, he spent 25 years in the Army. He even started out as a private, moved up to Sergeant First Class, then become an officer, and he went from Second Lieutenant all the way up to Major before retiring. He's been interviewed on numerous media outlets and has been very in the weeds on this war. And he came out and said this week that that Putin has lost the war in Ukraine, that he 
doesn't have the means to break the will of the Ukrainian people to continue their fighting and their resistance. He doesn't have the means to break the will of the West that's supporting Ukraine. And so the only question for Putin is how many soldiers are going to die before this stops. And he rightly says, and this was ominous and also well said, he said that uh, Major retired Major John Spencer said that Putin lost the war for Ukraine in April at the Battle of Kiev. He lost the Battle of Kharkiv, which is in the Donbass region, obviously, in September. Those were those spectacular um, advances that we covered several weeks ago. Uh, and then he says, now he has lost the Battle of Kherson. Where will he lose next? Ukraine will not stop. Winter is coming for Russia. So that's his prediction. And, you know, I use the analogy of that. This is how I see it right now, that Putin is like this bankrupt small business owner who still has the Denali. You know, he's got the speedboat. He's got the mansion. But he's drinking and he's losing sleep because he knows there's like a three-inch stack of certified mail and he's about to have to give up the toys. But most of the people in the community, they have no clues. His employees, they have their jobs. The courts haven't authorized seizures yet. And, you know, so far the small business guy, he's not hiding at church or restaurants or at rotary meetings. Everyone thinks, you know, he's still got money. But he's sweating and the truth's going to come out soon. And so... To me, that explains why Putin has, you know, discussed negotiations, he's threatened nukes, he's, you know, foolishly tried to break the Ukrainian spirit by attacking the electrical uh, grid, and, and he should have been attacking military targets. But he's like this cursing, blustering businessman who's threatening to sue the banks, and the whole time he's lying to his wife. But the reality is, is... This small business guy, he's already bankrupt. He's just, it hasn't happened yet. And I think it's that way with Putin. He's lost this war the coming weeks, months. It might still even be years. It's just a matter of when he finally wants to accept that he's lost this war. Just like the small business guy at some point has to admit that he's bankrupt. He has to tell his employees at some point. He has to tell his wife. And he has to deal with the consequences. And so at some point, Putin is going to have to deal with the consequences. He's going to have to tell his people. And it's just a matter of how much worse he wants to make this until all of that happens. That's where I see it. It's kind of an analogy I came up with in my mind and thought I'd share that. So got all that in. The crazy thing is, and I've got this in the source notes too, is that the Russians in the East, in part of the East, they're still trying, and they're trying hard. And I've got video in there of, of a mass casualty event which left hundreds of dead in this kind of botched offensive they launched. They keep hitting this one area. They've attacked it multiple times. And whereas we're any military that was using modern tactics, at some point you would circle around, find another weak point. The Russians just keep hitting the same spot. And so they're... Uh, one analyst said it was the 155th Marine Infantry Brigade, but you can watch this video. At first, it's impressive, this Russian attack. Lots of tanks, and, you know, I wouldn't want to be looking at that. But this is modern war warfare, and there are radios, and there are things such as artillery. And you can literally watch as artillery just begins raining down on these exposed vehicles, and... They they decimate it. There's no other word for it. Doesn't appear the Ukrainians took many, if any, casualties. And so, 
it's it's really sad for the Russian people and the Russian soldiers who are fighting because there are brave men who are doing, you know, and I'm sure some of them are honorable. I've talked about the atrocities a lot, but there are probably good men who are just doing their duty and they're following foolish, barely um, educated officers into impossible attacks. And so it's just a bloodbath is what it is. And so you can see the video of that. Also put up a video as the Russians have withdrawn in other parts of the east. They blew a dam in the Kharkiv region. And, you know, as I said in the preview, that was a ton of water in there. There's 50 miles long, 2 miles wide. They blew this dam. Obviously called a man-made natural... It caused a man-made natural disaster. Who knows how many homes were flooded, how much areas were destroyed from this it didn't make the news because russia still is in the area it's hard to get media there but you know i live in the south and tva built a lot of dams around here and even after 9-11 there was a lot of fear if terrorists somehow hit a dam how many people would that you know would drown as thousands of homes were flooded and it would be a horrendous situation and that's basically what happened in the kharkiv area the only thing that reduced the you know effects of it is that a lot of people had already left the area because it's a war zone and it's you know for months there's been fighting in the area so i don't know how many people died from it but it certainly caused unbelievable damage and anytime you release a reservoir like that it takes a long time to build up a lake that you can use for power that you can use for fishing um so you know that's gone and who knows how long it would take to fix the dam and to refill it but i know that once ukraine you know they have shown themselves to be people of strong spirit and very um, industrious and I'm sure that once they reclaim all this land they'll get to fixing that dam if that's possible uh, so I wanted to put that let's move to a bit about why you the US supporting Ukrainian efforts is serving US interests and I wanted to share just a bit from a columnist Timothy Snyder and he was talking about how Republicans say this is costing the Americans too much, and he says nothing could be more wrong, that the Ukrainian resistance is providing extraordinary security benefits to America, that you know even Republicans say that China is America's real long-term rival, and that basically by Russia, by Ukraine fighting Russia, they are decimating the Russian army. And so they're reducing the need for a land-based army in Europe. He goes into some details about this. And so not only is this war showing an example to China that invading Taiwan is a very bad idea, it allows us to relocate our focus, some of our forces, into areas to prevent China from doing what China wants to do. And he goes into detail of that. I wanted to cover it a little better than I am. But you might just have to go check it out to the source notes if you want to. Um, didn't have as much time as I had hoped to on some of this recording. But I feel like most of the people listening to this show are already on board. Or you're probably not listening to this anyway. So I'm probably just beating a dead horse on that. I also have a thread in there about the first country that supplies Ukraine with tanks. And I wanted to share just a little bit about this. And this is from a Ukrainian. And he said, a random thought. Sooner or later, Ukraine will decide what modern tank to use. And he says, with its 40 million population, 
2,000 mile border with you know Russia, it will need not fewer tanks than Poland, which has 35 million people. And he talks about Poland buys a thousand or has has already bought like a thousand of the tank that Poland is currently using. And he says that long term Ukraine is going to buy the tank that it knows. And so he makes this argument that he goes into the different cost of tanks, like an Abrams costs six million, a Leopard, which is a German tank, costs three to seven million, depending on what options you put. And so he goes into you need a thousand tanks, what those cost per each. We're talking four billion dollars here, plus maintenance, plus um, you know all the things that the tanks are going to need. And so he says, you know, if any country in the West was thinking smart, the country which first sends its tanks to Ukraine will not only help provide a symbol of victory over the Russians, but it's going to secure a market because the Ukrainians are going to buy the tanks that they know. And so if their crews are getting trained on whether it's German Leopards or, you know, Abrams or whatever the type of tank, well, that'll probably be the tank that Ukraine ends up buying. So there's going to be this big market there. And so, like I said, I'm not going to get into some argument or big debate about the military-industrial complex, but it is worth thinking about the fact that there are economic considerations to the first country that helps Ukraine provide Ukraine with tanks. Right now, they're not really getting provided with uh, tanks. They're getting armored personnel carriers and some other vehicles. But tanks, they're not getting. They're getting resupplied, basically updated, uh, Soviet-slash-communist block, like T-72s. And um, those are being outfitted with some additional and more modern features. But those are the ones that the Ukrainians know how to use and service and all their, you know, logistical elements best support but ukraine is working toward moving toward nato type weapons and so there are several nato type german or type tanks from germany other countries that could fit that need and at some point they're going to have to select what type of tank they want to use so you know right now ukraine's economy is in a you know tough situation because of the war but the reality is is it's a vibrant country it's a large country and so it's going to have a lot of buying power so he makes that argument I thought I'd share that. Definitely worth um, sharing, I think. And let's move from that to... I saw an article. This I hadn't, I hadn't seen this anywhere. But that Ukraine is really trying to walk a tight rope right now with China. So the story that I'm referring to was first uh, reported, or maybe only reported, I guess. I haven't seen it anywhere else, but haven't also searched anywhere else. But it was initially reported in Politico.eu, um, which is, of course, the... European version of Politico, which is obviously a mostly uh, online-based uh, political reporting website in the U.S., but so they have a European model as well, which I don't know a lot about. I've honestly never been in it, but on some of the Google searches that I have set up to alert me of certain types of news, I saw an article. I've only seen this article in the European version, but Politico covers how Ukraine is in this unique situation where they're walking a, like I said, a tightrope with how they interact with China. And so the story goes into a little bit about how there are some um, folks from Taiwan, which is of course the island that China is threatening to retake, who have come to Ukraine to fight and to report on the war, and one of them recently passed. 
And Taiwan is obviously cheering on Ukraine because Ukraine is going through what Taiwan could at some point end up going through. And obviously most people in Taiwan want Ukraine to do well enough so that China would never be foolish or reckless enough to take such an, a step as invading an island of you know tens of millions of people. So that's kind of the background. Well, interestingly, Ukraine is doing everything it can to not upset China. And the reason is they don't want to antagonize China and have China send financial support or weapons to Putin, which is obviously they all, you know, mostly use the same type of communist bloc weapons. So they don't want China to obviously send ammunition, artillery shells to Russia. So that's part of it, as North Korea has been doing. Um, although you'll see conflicting reports. Some folks say North Korea is, some say they aren't. I haven't really researched enough to know what the truth is. But either way, I think they are, is the latest I read. But they don't want China slinging all of its hefty weight into helping Russia in this war. And also, they're already thinking a step beyond the potential end of this war. And they believe that China can help play an important role in helping rebuild the infrastructure in Ukraine from everything from streets, electrical grid, etc., etc. Obviously, we talked about the dam that the Russians blew up. It's going to have a lot of need for everything from concrete to, you name it, building supplies. And so they, they know that China, although it is Although it does throw its weight around, it is a huge economy. And they send China regularly, its companies regularly send workers everywhere from the Middle East to Africa to you name it. So Ukraine is playing it smart um, and they're trying not to antagonize China. So it was interesting. I hadn't seen those, you know, like I said, I hadn't seen a story on that, but I hadn't seen anything that really made me realize the tightrope that President Zelensky's having to walk right now. So got a link to that article if you want to get into the weeds a little bit more on that that's in the um, substack notes as well and then while I was digging around on that you guys know I just sometimes I research too much which doesn't help the book production but I'm kind of a political junkie history junkie politics junkie you name it and I came across a uh, recent phone call between China and Russia and in this, and I've got a link to it, so it's not like they're hiding this. It's not like it's some deep state secret or something. But I wanted to read just part of it because, you know, Sun Tzu, Art of War. This goes back to Eastern philosophy and actually Chinese thinking from a general couple thousand years ago. You know, you got to know your enemy. you got to know what they're thinking, what their moves are. But also, sometimes if you know what how someone sees the world, you know, no one wants a conflict with China. I certainly don't. I want to be prepared for one. If it comes to that, I want to make sure that we try to avoid it. But if we can see what China thinks, how they see the world, then hopefully we can avoid such a thing. And so I'm sharing this because this message is how China sees the world. And I think it's important that we in the West see the see what China thinks, what China says, what China believes. And so I'm going to read it. It's about a paragraph or so, if you'll be patient. So... It starts by saying that Vladimir Putin had called China to obviously congratulate their president, uh, Secretary General Secretary Xi, which most in the West call him president. It's hard to translate the Chinese language into the correct term, but chairman is not what he's typically known as. And typically in the West, we don't call him the general secretary. But 
President Xi was uh, called to be congratulated by Vladimir Putin. And this is what China says, that his congratulatory call, and as soon as I read this, if I had more time, I'd research it, but I wonder if the United States reached out to congratulate Chairman Xi or President Xi. Part of me says, I'm sure we did. Part of me wonders, though. But anyway, I didn't research that. But, so the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, calls President Xi, who's on his, I think it was his third term, um, has gotten a lot more power. But this is where I want to dig into. His call, according to the Chinese, quote, has reflected the high-level mutual trust and firm mutual support between China and Russia. China will also firmly support Russia in rallying and leading the Russian people under the leadership of President Putin to achieve strategic development goals against all the odds and disturbance and to further establish Russia's status as a major country on the international stage. Uh, he goes on to say that both China and Russia are fully entitled to seeking their own development and revitalization, and that this is fully consistent with the trend of the times. Any attempt, and I'm going to read, I'm reading this word for word, any attempt to hold back the progress of China and Russia will end up in failure. China is, re is ready to further deepen exchanges with Russia at all levels and take China-Russia relations and cooperation in various fields to a higher level so as to bring more benefits to the two countries and peoples and contribute more elements of stability to the unstable world. All right, so that's, I read it word for word. There were some interesting phrases in there, like rallying and leading the Russian people under the leadership of President Putin. That was, you know, that one got my attention. To achieve strategic development goals. I think it probably meant to say developmental goals. They're English. Honestly, there are parts of this that's kind of choppy. But anyway, uh, to strategic developmental goals against all the odds and disturbance. So they're, I guess they're calling the increasing um, focus from the West on China as a disturbance. And to further establish Russia's status as a major country on the international stage. So this is, you know, President Biden gets beat up a lot. Like, why don't we send jets now? Why don't we send more and more and more and more? And a lot of people have feared some type of nuclear confrontation. And I will sometimes get into it with people on Twitter, or at least try to defend an alternative view, which is that, you know, we have, we've done a ton of support, obviously. Some say we should have done more faster, and we've kind of eased into the support as we've played this along. And it's almost like we make a move, we see what kind of counter move Russia makes, what the rest of the world does. And I actually think the way we've played this is, is very smart, very strategic. Um, and so even those who now say, you know, we talked about tanks earlier, why don't we send M1A1s? Well, if you listen to the generals, General Mark Hartling talked about they're massive tanks. They wouldn't even work well on some of the roads. They use the wrong kind of fuel. So there's a reason we haven't sent M1A1 tanks. Well, why not fighter jets? Well, it possibly would be an escalation. Um, it would take months for them to learn. There's, there are reasons. But also, when you read sentences like this, this is the stuff most of us don't know. What does the um, intelligence departments of the United States see 
between communication between China and Russia. What if we send a squadron of F-16s, but there's background communication that China will send Russia three squadrons of whatever the latest communist bloc jet is? If you read these communications, clearly China wants Russia to not end in some massive defeat. And there's been times where, you know, recently China told Putin that he did not, they did not want him to use any type of tactical nuke. They didn't see that as the way forward. So I guess I'm just saying all this to remind us that there's, there's th- there are things we don't know that are going on. But then there are also clues that are out there that people don't really read about or, or hear about. And it's, you know, just reading this, and we know about some of the oil deals and economic deals between China and Russia, but just reading this, as we continue to, you know, figure out our alignment of other countries to keep China from doing what China wants to do, which is to regain Taiwan, to expand its influence in ways that are not necessarily the most ethical or peaceful. It's important to note that China is also figuring out who its allies are, and it's not in China's interest for Russia to completely plummet, to go into some kind of despair, for there to be a change in leadership. And so I wanted to share all that. Hopefully you found it half as interesting as I did, because I certainly found it all interesting, and I could probably talk about all this for another 20 minutes. But I've kind of run a bit long, and so... I'll stop there. But if you if you if you guys love this stuff, want me to go deeper, if you're like, hey, length the length of the show is not a problem, let me know. Feedback is good. I try to listen to feedback. So let's end that topic. And let's go to perhaps the biggest news in the world on any day period. What could I possibly be talking about? Well, clearly I'm talking about the Marine Corps birthday. November 10th. I know most Marines are obnoxious. A lot of people who meet me say, man, I had no idea you were a Marine. And I'll be honest. The reason is, is that I unlearned much of the, eh, how do I say this? In the Marine Corps, they teach you to be the the best. And they teach a certain amount of pride and confidence that often comes across as arrogance. And it kind of is arrogance. And I used to be that guy. I used to be a jerk. There's no nice way to say it. Um, I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. I was in, I was an infantryman. You didn't mess with me. You didn't mess with my buddies. I'd tell you who the best was in a heartbeat. And so I get out of the Marine Corps, and I'm that guy. And I kind of realized at some point, Stan, you're kind of just an asshole. And I, I didn't want to be an asshole anymore. So that's the honest truth. And so I went through college and had some, you know, amazing friends that in the civilian world, that helped help me transition and not be a jerk. So I know sometimes Marines are a little obnoxious, and I try not to be that way. I am very proud of my service. I am very proud of the Marine Corps. I think the Marine Corps is so important to this country. But in the, in the source notes, I'm not sure where I was going with all this. I guess it's just my show so I can go where I want to go, which is kind of nice. But in the source notes, I shared the video, which is probably the best Marine Corps video I've ever seen. I'm 45 years old, and I kind of commented online. I'm like, you guys taking 45-year-olds because I'm ready to go back in. It is the most motivational, amazing video ever. So it's a pretty amazing three, four-minute video to begin with. But besides all that, it kind of is like, I, like, I don't know who signs off on these things. 
Because my time in the military and most of the folks I've talked to, the bureaucracy is so freaking deep. We're talking miles and miles deep. I can't imagine how many people signed off on this. But what's interesting is if you watch the video, it clearly shows North Koreans like marching as a threat. It talks about the past of the Marine Corps and how we fought. Just the places we fought. There's clearly... Um, video imagery of, of China and the threat it faces. Um, it's kind of a in-your-face, if you guys want to throw down, we'll throw down and we'll kick your butt. And so it's like, I'm a little surprised it got signed off on, honestly. And then part of me's like, oh man, if this gets out, like there's going to be some weak-kneed four-star general or something who's going to be like, oh, you can't put this out. Or the folks at the State Department are going to be like, guys, really? Like, why are you putting this stuff out? But it's a pretty amazing video. It's going to make you make you proud to be an American, make you proud that we have the Marine Corps. Um, I could talk about the Marine Corps forever, and I'll try not to. So watch the video if you get a second. And if you watch it, tell me what you think. Is it a little... I mean, I loved it. I ain't going to lie. I'm straight-up infantry guy. I straight-up love just let's tell China, hey, if you guys want to want to play, we'll play, and it ain't going to be a good day for you because... We've been playing at a much higher level for a lot longer, from our Navy to the Air Force to whatever. So why don't you just not make a mistake? But that's not how things work between countries. And I know the State Department, a lot of people are just like, hey, guys, let's think about your economy. We don't have to do all this stuff. But the Marine Corps video, flat out, is like, you guys want to play? We'll play. We got guys who want to play. And we we ain't really been playing anywhere in a while, so where do you want to do this? And it is, it is as motivational and aggressive and amazing as anything you're going to see for a bit. And I know that a lot of people, especially on the far right, will talk about wokeism and, and this and that. Um, I don't think this video is very woke. It is. It's strong. It's worth watching. So anyway, to all the Marines out there, happy birthday. I know you guys and gals out there who were in the Marine Corps have probably had a hard time adjusting if you got out. I know for me, going from being a squad leader, as a sergeant, as a guy who had trained a lot with uh, Force Recon on a med float and um, got to be in what they called back then the Covering Force Platoon and to have a lot of responsibility and see a little danger to be basically an American hero and then get out and then I remember the feeling of being in an office depot and then later I worked at Staples but I was 21 you know being led by people who aren't necessarily the best managers and you go from, like, being something. Man, I was something. And then I'm just like, I'm not Sergeant Mitchell anymore. I'm just Stan. I'm some guy who's frustrated. He's having to work on a Friday night while working his way through college and being treated with almost no respect. And I'm stacking shelves. And the worst part is they don't even trust me to stack shelves right. So it's like, it is the most humbling thing to come out of the military for anyone, period. All the services. Like I said, I'm not the arrogant jerk I used to be. I respect every single branch. I respect reservists. I've done two years in the reserves. I know how good the reservists are. Most people have no idea how good our reserves are. And it's partly because they're generally older folks who are more mature, higher level at college degrees. And they're just good. But anyway, I won't get in the reserves. But I know how hard, I know how hard it is to, to transition from any branch, from that brotherhood and sisterhood and um, the fraternity that's there to you lose your friends, you lose your structure and you lose that feeling of like being somebody. And man, then you're like, you're nothing. You're just a, 
a dude working retail trying to work on a college degree and you realize half of the skills you knew, how you stand, how you talk, way you look at people, oh, that's not cool anymore. You can't do that. You can't be a jerk. Why are you that way, man? Chill out. Relax, Stan. What is your deal, dude? Ah, man, that, that was a hard, hard, hard transition. There are still times, 20 years later, I'm not 100% sure I've completely transitioned. But then also, you don't want to lose. You don't want to totally lose all those skills you learned. And I'm not talking about just the ability to throw a fight, although I've got a heavy bag I hit on regularly and all those stuff. You don't ever lose that kind of love for um, being able to defend yourself and those things. But you don't want to lose being different, as crazy as that sounds. You are different if you served in the military. And you want to be different because America needs people who are different, who care, who put others before themselves. You know, I read an article, and I need to share that at some point, about the crazy thing about the Marine Corps or any military unit is, like, you literally become brothers, at least in my case, in the infantry, it was brothers, but I know now it's, you know, there are females involved, so it's brothers and sisters. And you literally would give your life for your brother or sister, and these aren't people you picked. And when you get out, you realize you kind of grow apart from some of these people, and that's what's sad. Because you realize you're not alike. Like, these aren't even necessarily people you would pick to be your best friend. You get thrown in with people who are different than you, but you would literally give your life for them. And so it's almost even stronger than friendship. It's hard to describe. At some point, maybe I'll find that article. I need to share that. But I am not, I was about to apologize for talking longer about on that than I planned, but nah, not going to do it. Glad I said every word of that too. Um, ooh, and I forgot, there's one other piece of news I did want to share about the Navy. Um, the U.S. Naval Institute shared something where in the um, beginning of when the World War II started to where it began, in 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, we had 790 ships. They called it vessels. I'm sure there's some naval reason for that, but I'm a Marine and I don't know the reason. So, But by the end, it went from 790 to 6,768. So they've got this photo that's just... Almost worth going to look on the substack alone. Just an unbelievably wide shot of almost an uncountable number of ships. And I assume this is probably toward the end of the war. And this is probably, um, I would say, like the peace signing in Japan. So there's like the whole fleet's massed there. Obviously, the war with Germany would be over by that point. But, um, And so it got me thinking about the size of of our Navy, and we're at 280 ships now, and some congressmen, we've talked about this in previous episodes, want the Navy to be bigger, and, you know, I was talking some online with some folks, and they were like, we don't have the steel, like, we literally could not build a, sh a fleet of ships much larger than what we already have. We just don't, we don't really have the capability of doing it. We would have to have a full-scale mobilization, and um, so we were talking about that and getting in the weeds a little bit, but What's interesting is while digging around on that, because again, I, I just run down rabbit holes sometime, sometimes, um, came across an article from the U.S. Naval Institute as well that said, you know, we should bring back the PT missile bolts, which if you remember, uh, I think President John Kennedy was in one. They were pretty famous during World War II. They're just small, little, fast. Um, they launched torpedoes back then, and they had to have a couple machine guns to protect them from air attacks, but... I guess the Navy is starting to think about the fact, hey, we can't build all these big ships, and even if we do, 
These things are, you know, to some degree targets for high-altitude ballistic missiles from China. So we need more targets. And we've seen this in Ukraine with drones. Like, why not flood the field with smaller ships? So they're talking about possibly bringing back small, affordable ships, although they call them boats. Again, there's probably some naval reason for that. I don't know the reason. That would carry powerful missiles. And I'm like, man, that is that is a great idea. Especially if you put some type of anti-air, um, you know, small cannons, anti-air machine guns on these things because you could put them further out from the fleet of the bigger ships, the aircraft carriers, the cruisers, and all the other ships that they have. I don't even know if they have cruisers anymore. I was on an LHA, a landing craft helo assault, but there will be ships out there with Marines on them. There will be larger destroyers and ships. I know destroyers aren't even that large, so I'm showing my lack of naval knowledge here, but I like the idea of, and I hope that they're seriously exploring the idea of smaller ships that have these missiles and that would also create a screening type um, ability of the larger ships. So that article is there if you want to get in the weeds on that. It's there. Go take a look at it. So we've got all that out. Let's move to the uh, motivation and wisdom part. And again, I feel like I ran long today, guys. So if this is not a problem, let me know. If it's like, guys, if it's like, Stan, come on, dude. Like, you're over an hour plus long. Like, kind of sound like someone with hot air. Hey, let me know that too. Okay, guys. So we'll move to the motivation and inspiration part now. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree. And one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school, and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out, and certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or, or to where they probably wanted to get in life, because it's hard to be around people that don't believe, that suck the energy out of you, or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams having idols that I looked up to, whether it's sports figures or people in history, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that. It just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, and that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said, so that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. Every week, I say the same thing. If you want to follow some of these folks, I'm not going to name them all. You can find them in the source notes. They're great people to follow. And if you need your battery charged through the week like I do, probably not a bad list of folks to follow. So let's just get started. First one, 
Don't be afraid of the space between your dreams and reality. If you can dream it, you can make it so. I like that one. And I also kind of tell myself, not that just if you can dream it, dream it, but like if something's put in you, maybe you're supposed to do it. But that's a lot deeper. And um, yeah, I've had a few of those. And I've done a few of those. So I'm kind of a big believer that if you uh, if something's speaking to you and you should do it, then maybe you should do it. Whether it's signing up for the Marine Corps at the age of 17 and demanding they put you in the infantry to eh, maybe running a weekly newspaper because you think that might like help a city and um, you know focus on not on building a community versus tearing it apart with horrible daily headlines from a you know from a um, corporate owned paper that pretends to be a community owned paper that only cares about money and overcharges for everything so I've done that game too and now I'm trying to unite the country which is kind of crazy too but even if the unite the country doesn't work just honoring the veterans that's good enough for me so I'll keep, I'll keep doing this but yeah so I'm kind of obviously a big believer in if you feel it, it ain't just dreaming it's like if something's in you like you should do it go do it so let's go to the next one this is from Gandhi you must be the change you wish to see in the world it's a good one this is from uh, I, I share things from this guy every now and then pretty regularly actually I guess uh, from Command Sergeant Major Curry. He's in the Army. I've said before, he's a great dude to follow. If you're not following him, give him a follow. But he said something that had me thinking. So here's the, the item he posted. Social media has really warped our brains into thinking 50 likes isn't a lot. But if 50 people were to come up to you and compliment you, you'd probably be overwhelmed. And that was like good. I was like, man, that, that is so true. And, you know, a lot of people kind of, I guess, knock aside relationships on Twitter and other places. And when I say relationships, I'm not talking about male-female, you know, fake love type stuff or any of that stuff. I'm just saying the friendships and the community that are some of these places. On the one hand, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that's shallow and it's whatever. But it gets deep. I've met actually some great friends through I, I pretty much live on twitter we'll see how twitter ends up going with whatever's going on but um doesn't matter the outlet um facebook you name it um people you know we live in a different world now we don't sit on our front porches and have the relationships that and the way of life that it used to be and this is just how it is now but i know that especially for veterans it's nice to have a community with people who have done some of the things you've done, and I've definitely found some of those folks, so... At any rate, should move on. Next one. You cannot change anyone, but you can be the reason someone changes. Is that amazing or what? You cannot change anyone, but you can be the reason someone changes. I like that one. If you think you can, you will. It's kind of a... one we all know, but it's so easy to forget that. It sounds so easy on paper... But, uh, you know, I've got a 13-year-old stepson who took him forever to get to where he could do one pull-up. And um, I remember after the first time he did one, he's so proud, and we videoed it. And, um, and afterward, I told him, I'm like, dude, until you get to where you're good at doing them, we got a pull-up bar in the hallway there, you know, through a do in a door jam, like, you put between a door. I'm like, until you get good at doing it, like, I'm telling you, 
at some point you're going to doubt yourself and you're not going to be able to do it. Even though you just physically did it, it's all mental. And he's like, no, 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 no. And like, sure enough, like an hour or so later, he's like, I'm going to do another one, get it ready, get the camera ready. And he couldn't do a pull-up. And so that's just proof. Like he literally could do one an hour ago. Why It wasn't like he lost muscle mass or strength in an hour. It was all brain power, which of course, whether it's Marine Corps boot camp or Navy SEAL training or whatever, like mental mentality, the mindset is so important. So if you think you can, you will. Next one. It's never too late to change your life for the better. I like that one. Next one. Expect less, prepare more, judge less, respect more, complain less, thank more, regret less, smile more. Which I know, given my accent, a lot of that was hard to take in, so I'll read it one more time. Expect less, prepare more like that one, judge less, respect more, we could all judge it a lot less, complain less, thank more, which be thankful obviously, so complain less, be thankful, last one, regret less, smile more, I like that, and then I wanted to share an image of, and I got to describe this, because it's one of the truest things I've seen in some time, so in your expectations, you imagine this chart of like from left to right, a line going up you know you're selling books and it's going to go straight up if you're you know you're playing baseball and you're getting better at it like my 13 year old stepson and you want to go to mlb and so you think hey i'm going to constantly keep getting better and better and better and but then reality is so that's what it is in your mind and if it was that easy it would honestly we'd all probably hit a lot more goals reality is before the chart even begins, there's no upward line. And it says, this is progress that does not feel like progress. And I thought that was so good. And then the line starts to go up. And of course, some charts will show it going up and down and there's setbacks and whatever, but it's still forward progress. But that beginning part where like you literally can't get the book out or you can't make the team or whatever those things are, you're still getting better at baseball. You just haven't gotten to that point you know, you're just not seeing the rewards yet. You're not seeing the measurables, but you are—you actually are making improvements, and that's when most people quit. All right, here we go. Next one. Don't lose hope. When the sun goes down, the stars come out. I like that one. So don't lose hope. When the sun goes down, the stars come out. Next one. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. Good one. Do what you're going to do. Don't just talk about it. I love that one. Next one. Discipline is key to success. You're not born with it. You develop it. So keep at it. I love that one. A lot of people have kind of gone into that whole uh, 1% better kind of, I don't want to say philosophy, but I guess management training tool or whatnot. But it's, you know, the small steps, they do add up. And so sometimes, especially if, if you're too hardcore, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up at whatever six a.m. or sometimes super early, and I'm going for a four mile run tomorrow in the cold and blah blah blah. And it's like, man, that, that's a tough way to start, and it's a great way to get injuries to your, you know, to get shin splints or to your knees. Um, and it's just a lot smarter sometimes to start slow and to start with maybe some, you know, burpees and squats and lunges in the, in the, you know, warm 
living room of your house at 6 a.m. and do that for a bit and then start drinking water better and then start doing this and this and then a few a few weeks or months or two in then you can go tackle that cold early 6 a.m. run for four miles that's a smart way to do it none of us really do that because it isn't it's um I don't know we, we set our our expectations too high sometimes so I always like to end with this one be the reason someone smiles be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the... Um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others. If you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, it's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but 
Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action, a couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown, book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what... um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akov, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl um, is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I talk about, or I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is, it's it's pretty deep. And so it, the, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish and will they survive with their honor and dignity and I think you know and I've been told this that soldier on just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up and then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan it's called Hill 406 it's about a couple of marines who couldn't be more different and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um, and then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is actually it's a part biography, part self-help all-inspiration-type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents. What sets them apart? What qualities allowed them to reach their goals where others failed? How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And Besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple. Did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker... Did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some. And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you. Kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking. 
how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge, like, two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. And so it's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of... Um, series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration, it's self-help type stuff, and so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents, and I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there, but... Again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How he managed to, with his name, with the background, the mixed background, the lack of money, and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book, in my humble opinion. So that's called Number 44, you can check that out as well. So I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much. And with that, I am out.